Hello all you seekers, explorers and renegades out there. Welcome to another episode of the Alchemy Experience podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Lemke. Today I have a very special treat for you. Uh, I have a representative from the Monroe Institute. Uh, He's actually the representative here in the UK for the Monroe Institute. And for you who are not familiar with the Monroe Institute. It was first established by uh, Robert Monroe, came out of his interest in consciousness uh, after he had experienced several spontaneous out-of-body experiences. The Institute today is uh, an important uh, place for research into consciousness to take place, where they are uh, collaborating with the University of Virginia on uh, these types of research, uh, doing uh, projects for the government, uh, the military and so forth. Uh, They are running programs in terms of uh, us as private citizens or lay people being able to experience consciousness at different levels and uh, bringing together the kind of left brain analytical and the uh, uh, freer right brain aspects of ourselves to experience consciousness at different levels. The Institute has uh, many other programs uh, in healing and so forth as well but uh, today I'm going to focus my conversation with uh, uh, Luigi on consciousness. So without further ado uh, here we go. Enjoy the ride. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Today, I have uh, Luigi Ciambarella with me. And um, despite the uh, sound of his name, he is uh, resoundingly from the north of England, uh, but with uh, uh, an obvious uh, Italian heritage. Napolitano, I think, right? Well, it's it's Neapolitan and and Calabrese, so very southern. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) Luigi, I first encountered uh, seeing him on a webcast with uh, uh, Vision Lacchiani, uh, Charlie Morley, and uh, Jade Shaw talking about the uh, 25th page of the CIA dossier uh, on Mind Valley. Uh, talking obviously the uh, dossier being uh, the uh, or the paper CIA paper being on uh, on consciousness and the uh, expansion of the uh, of consciousness. And out of body, more <laughs> out of body experiences, more, more uh, kind of in uh, everyday speak. So from that, I then uh, figured uh, I have heard of the Monroe Institute in America, the uh, in Virginia, and the the work they do with the University of Virginia. And I was I always wanted to go and experience um, uh, the the courses they do. And I was like, well, one time, you know, at some point, I'll end up going to to uh, America and do that. Uh, but, uh, you know, as the universe works and uh, fate has it, I was able to manifest this far earlier than I thought because uh, it turns out that U- uh, Monroe Institute has a UK affiliate and that is uh, Luigi. Um, so uh, we, I went and experienced uh, six days of uh, uh, the gateway exp- um, adventure or gateway experience there and uh, it was amazing. So something I can recommend to everybody, you can check out the links in the, uh, in the show notes here. But I'm going to let Luigi talk a little bit more about his background. I also, we have a second connection because of my hypnotherapy course I took at the National College for Hypnosis, uh, for hypnosis Psychotherapy. Um, and uh, he's a teacher there as well. So um, yeah, uh, 
clearly was meant to be, Luigi. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, some wonderful synchronicities there, Christopher, and it's lovely to see you again. Yeah, likewise. Uh, the, uh, um, okay, so I'll, I'll go right to the beginning, but then fast forward very quickly. So sure. uh, when I was seven years old, I saw my dead grandmother, and that was in a kind of dreamlike state. I, I was waking up, I saw her, she told me that she was fine, essentially, in Neapolitan. And then I woke up again, and I related this experience to my mother, uh, and she was surprised because my brother had had exactly the same experience. And so that immediately got me thinking, like, hmm, that might have been more than just a dream. Uh, it certainly didn't feel like a regular dream, and that it was a shared experience in the sense that my brother had also uh, had something similar. So that got me really, really curious about mind consciousness and, and afterlife states in particular. And then life just got in the way. Um, you know, did his thing, and and uh, I I would have like spontaneous lucid dreams and out of body experiences in that time. But you know, the 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 usual stuff that people report when they were younger that they would just fly down the stairs and then outside and then fly around a little bit more and and um, and that sort of thing. So there wasn't any sort of deep connection with all that is or um, meeting guides or anything like that. And. When I, but I was still very curious about um, psychology and especially consciousness. So I, I studied that at uh, college, and then I went to university to study it. And I and I quickly found that um, there's a big philosophy behind um, psychology as it's taught at the moment, and that is the materialist objectivist paradigm, uh, which says that basically everything's a byproduct of the brain and and. Uh, I didn't really reconcile that with my lived experience. My lived experience said that um, something else is going on and maybe the, the, the brain is, is heavily involved, but um, I kind of already intuitively had an idea that it's more like a, a radio receiver than the, the originator of the experience. And I wondered what sort of states, uh, what receptive states one could get into that would expand those types of experiences. So um, together with a, with a colleague at university, I, I became very, very interested in hypnosis and how that hypnotic state could uh, facilitate access into um, expanded states of consciousness, essentially. And I was the primary guinea pig. My, my, uh, my colleague was a, a hypnotherapist, and, um, and we would just spend hours in the lab um, at the, the, the University of Manchester just just testing stuff out, seeing how deep I could go and, and, uh, and spending hours, I mean, really, hours and hours. Kind of reminds me of uh, the movie Flatline. <laughs> it, it, not, not quite, but close. Um, and uh, so the, the uh, and, you know, when I went to university, I mean, you met my wife, Pam, you know, we, we were, we weren't engaged, but, you know, we, we'd been going out and, and she went to Nottingham, I went to Manchester. So, um, you know, we would see each other maybe every, every couple of weeks and, and, so when I was at university, I was actually studying. <laughs> you know, it was it was a rare event uh, for a lot of my peers. You know, I was actually in in, in uni to study, and uh, so I would stay in my room most of the time and 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 work and read and 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 then meditate and and do a lot of uh, self hypnosis and um, and I got really really into lucid dreaming and. Um, they first of all happened as a byproduct of so much hypnosis. You know, you, you get into this mind awake body asleep state regularly um, and it starts to make its way into the nighttime. I also had the added motivation of having um, a few of my flatmates 
um, who were really into like jungle music for some strange reason. Um, no, no offense to anyone who likes jungle music out there, but I mean, this, this would be on a lot. <laughs> so there was a very strong motivation. I need to get out of here. So my mind would just get out. And, and I would, um, and first of all, I had the very classic out of body experience in, in uh, my halls of residence where I, I literally separated, uh, turned around, saw my body in bed, floated down into a standing position, and then walked a, a, around the hallway. Um, which was kind of neat, uh, very exciting to begin with, but then it became quickly boring because I, I used to initiate these experiences at about three, four o'clock in the morning. And um, what you find is that most people are asleep at that time. And so when you're walking around uni halls at three, four in the morning, there's no one about, you know, so it's very tricky to validate information. Um, you know, the, I remember the first time I really validated an out-of-body experience um, I went outside and there was a fox rummaging in some bins there um, because, you know, students don't really keep bins particularly tidy. And uh, and I just came back to my body, went to the window, and sure enough, there was a fox in the bin. And I thought that, that was really neat. Um, but, yeah, but no one to celebrate with. <laughs> it's three in the morning. Uh, so, uh, apart, from the apart from the fox, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, thank that fox. And um, yeah, and, and so I, I got more interested in philosophy of mind, consciousness, and, and where else that could go. And, and um, concurrent with having these experiences, I started having other experiences that were a bit weird, you know, the, the things like the vibrational state um, and, and just noting the very strange, um, uh, what seemed like physiological responses to being into deep uh, trance and and this would include, you know, crashing sounds, doors slamming, um, like thunder and lightning going off somewhere nearby. And, and, and you know, the vibration, it felt like a train was going through me. I mean, it was a very strong um, physical or what felt like a physical sensation. Um, and I was having these very regularly. And, and a colleague of mine recommended that I read a book. And that book was uh, Journeys Out of the Body by Robert Monroe. And that's how I first... Uh, came to know and, and uh, appreciate the work that was being done at the Monroe Institute because here was a guy who in the late 1950s was having experiences or had had experiences that I was experiencing uh, in my halls of residence. And, but, you know, I mean, he was a lot more fearful of them because he didn't have any other reference material. And, you know, I, I knew about experiences like that, maybe uh, indirectly, but certainly... Um, I was aware of them. They didn't shock me because I'd had some as a kid. Um, so I was just very curious about where, where they could go. And when I finished university then, um, I, I decided that pursuing the, the career in psychology just didn't fit because I, I didn't want to stay on and do a PhD in that materialist paradigm. Um, so I entered the world of work and, and you know, got married and, and uh, had a life with Pam for a while. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're still married, but, you know, it was just that kind of, uh, um, you know, just pursuing other things. And so uh, meditation became something that uh, was part of my everyday life. And I was using the, the tools of the Institute and, and the binaural beats and, and sound technology that we use, uh, predominantly Hemisync at the time. And, uh, and still having these experiences. And I went to the Monroe Institute in Spain, first of all, to do the Gateway Program, the one that you just did. And, and, and then uh, I went to the following year to the United States, to the Virginia campus to do the Guidelines Program. And I, and I was pretty much hooked at that point. 
Um, I thought this is not not only because of what they were able to do um, and the structure of the programs, but also what it was like to explore with with fellow travelers. Uh, the, the group energy was just massively magnified, and and that then magnified my experiences. And uh, um, you know, you're nodding there. I mean, you saw what happened in the group. You know, some people yeah. who were just really taking off, and and it was really surprising for them. So that for me uh, was a revelation, and um, I wanted to know how to maybe get this out to more people and why more stuff wasn't happening in the UK, seeing as all of this stuff was in English anyway. And uh, and then the, the thought came to me, well, why don't you just do it yourself? Mm. And then I just laughed that off. And uh, <laughs> as one does, <laughs> as one does. And, and then, but you know, it was, it was just in the background, you know, it was always there like a, like a, a hum in the background, you know, almost like a tinnitus, you know, you, you notice it <laughs> when it's there, <laughs> but it, it, it was always there. Um, and, and then eventually that, that calling just became stronger and stronger and the conditions in my life, um, be, became such that, uh, I, I was able to, um, essentially utilize, all of my holiday time where I was working to pursue uh, running workshops and becoming a trainer for the for the Monroe Institute. And uh, so for a long time, I, I, I had two jobs and uh, would do this on the weekend. And it was almost like a superpower. You know, you, you, you go and do this weird stuff on the weekend and, and then you've got a nine to five day job. And uh, but you know it was it, it was a good balance actually for a while and then things started to to take off more and more and then what I found also was that you know we, we're in the field of personal development self development and working in a group is absolutely wonderful and sometimes things emerge from those situations which require more specialist one on one work. And I didn't really feel that I was uh, equipped for that um, and to, to provide that kind of service for people. So I started to have a look at um, if there were any training schools, uh, particularly in psychotherapy, um, which, which would, would help me to, to build up that skill set. And I found out about the National College of Hypnosis and Psychotherapy, and uh, and it was really handy because you know I was working in Manchester, and and they had weekends in Manchester, and I thought you know these guys seem uh, seem pretty good, um, so I signed up with them, and and uh, it's it's almost like the same path as Monroe, you know. I, I start by becoming a um, somebody who's engaged with the material, and then I become a tutor for them. <laughs> so that's so the yeah. all or nothing, all or nothing. It's all or nothing, yeah. Um, so, you know, what I found, though, is that the two inform themselves, you know, I, I found that um, the work that I do with Monroe was benefited from the maybe there's some of, more of the psychological uh, depth uh, psychology that 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 comes from the this studies and, and learnings from the college and also the one on one work and the that ability to to work individually with certain uh, certain people within the groups and then integrate them back into the group again um and and likewise the the Monroe work has uh, started to spill into the work that I do with the college because I'm also teaching for instance uh um I teach workshops on how to um um, develop and cultivate a practice of, of uh, psychotherapeutic dream work. So mm-hmm. um, how to both use lucid dreaming in particular, but dream work in general, 
um, to work with with your clients and, and also to work on your own process. So this is the kind of beautiful um, symbiosis that the where I am right now. So. Um, so now I have kind of three jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two, two, two wasn't enough, you know. I have the I have the the the, the role of uh, the tutor for the the Monroe Institute, a trainer for the Monroe Institute, tutor for the college, um, and and also uh, an individual hypnopsychotherapist uh, where I see clients on a one-on-one basis, usually through Zoom. And uh, so they all feed into each other quite nicely, but they keep me incredibly busy. And while that's been happening, then I've also been involved in developing the new app that we have for the Monroe Institute, which has meant uh, devising exercises for that and, and helping to structure those into categories and whatnot. So yeah, that, that just launched on? a couple of weeks ago. And uh, that's you'll, right. Yeah. You'll find a link in the uh, in the uh, description to that app. Um, and uh, very reasonable. It's like fifty dollars a year. Uh, to yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty. It's, it's pretty. Considering that right now we have uh, eighty plus exercises within the app. Yeah. Um. It, it's it, and and we're just going to keep adding things. I mean, one of the things that, um, you know, we we, we didn't just want to make an app that had, um, audio tracks for meditation. We wanted to make something that, um almost allowed you to have the Monroe experience in your pocket. Yeah. So within the next month or so, we should start seeing the social, um, the social media aspects of the app come online as well, which, which will mean that people can be part of uh, communities and groups and so on within the app. So we, we, we don't share data with third parties and all that kind of stuff. So meditation is a key element to it in, in whatever way you want. But if you want to connect with fellow explorers and so on and build up a community, then that's going to be there as well. So I think, I think fellow, fellow explorers is a better terminology than uh, fellow weirdos. Uh, that we also use, but uh, <laughs> it, it is nice to, you know, when, you, when you're working with these types of experiences, uh, oftentimes it's not, when you talk to people that are uh, not necessarily having the same experiences, it, it is a, it's a little tough because you, you want, it's so exciting and you want to share it, right? And uh, so yeah. it's a good platform to have those kind of conversations. Yeah, and, and just on that, you know, the, the weird thing, I don't know anybody in the whole planet uh, who has normal dreams. No. You know, so, so when somebody actually pays attention, everybody has maybe five or six weird experiences every night, you know. Right. Uh, no matter how straight and narrow you want to play it, you know, that if you relate your dreams, they're weird. Um, so th this is also one of the one of the things we wanted to do, which was to show that actually, you know, the vast majority of the population, if not everybody, has experiences that at some level could be described as weird, but they're actually normal because yeah. everybody has them. So, you know, that normalizing the experience and then essentially saying this is safe to explore yeah. was one of the primary goals of, of what we were, what we are doing most at the Monroe Institute, um, but also within the app. Well, it's only weird until everybody, uh, or a bigger majority starts to say it's normal, then it becomes normal, right? Right. And then the ones that are on the outside, of, or the minority becomes, they're the one weird ones, right? So yeah. it's just a part of the human psyche. I'm kind of curious on, in terms of DreamWorks, um, I, I have a sense that DreamWorks is that part of psychology that hasn't, 
technology, technologically wise, it's come further. But in terms of the psychotherapeutic uh, benefits that we can draw from it, hasn't evolved much since uh, Carl Jung. Not, not really, not really. I mean, um, it's in comparison it's, to other it's, aspects it's of psychotherapy. It's a lost art, you know. Right. I mean, that, that's that's how I see it. Um, and you know, one of the things that I found with with training psychotherapists is that they sometimes say you know, people tell them about their dreams, and they just don't know what to do with that. Hmm. They don't know what to do with that information. Um, and and I find a, a rich uh, uh, treasure trove of, of data and, and sure. information about the client, about how they relate to their environment, uh, maybe values that that uh, and beliefs that they assign to and uh, uh, themselves to the world and so on, um, and all of that comes across in the symbols of dreams. Mm-hmm. So so um, to discount that is to discount basically a third of the lived experience of, of every person on the planet, you know? So it, it, it seems a real um, a wasted opportunity in therapy to, to not work with, with some dream content. But I, I can see how um, people do um, become concerned when they, when they come across dreams because they're weird, you know? They're, they're weird, they're, they're very... Um, uh, much tailored to the individual experiencing the dream. And that means that you have to really get uh, into uh, some sort of cohesion with the person in front of you yeah. to, to understand their worldview and as closely as possible. And and you, there isn't this prescribed, I can tell you, I can advise you from the outside, you know. And, and I've never been a big fan of um, dream dictionaries. No. Because, um, and that, that's not disrespect to, to people who've written dream dictionaries and so on, there are certain general archetypes which do have, um, you know, culturally specific motifs that repeat and so on. But the key element is that you're experiencing it as the dreamer and therefore what does that mean for you at this moment in time, what's going on in your external world and your inner dynamics that that brought about that particular symbol at that time and how do the symbols relate to each other, which is again something that's going to be very specific to you rather than just taking an element in isolation and reading what it means in a dictionary. So what, what one of the things that I encourage my clients, not all of them because not everybody's interested and not everybody remembers the dreams and of course you can you can train that but um the the main thing is that if it's volunteered by a client then i will help them to to make sense of that not by putting my own spin on it but by helping them to decode it for themselves but then the key the key element there is is not only the analysis and and interpretation of dreams which was very much the um the the freudian angle you know and and the 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 psychoanalytic um, or the psychodynamic perspectives, but also then the next part, which is to, okay, you've got the message. Now, what do you do with it? Yeah. That, that's the completion of the cycle, you know, to bring it into expression in some sort of way, either through um, a ritual, an action that you do on the outside, or by changing your internal attitude towards whatever the, the, the message was. You know, it might not necessarily be behavior. It could be a thought that needs to shift. But there's usually an invitation in a dream that, that invites... Um, integration and without acknowledging that then dream messages can repeat 
and and this is where repetitive dreams especially nightmares which are designed to get your attention mm-hmm. but uh, repetitive dreams are just going over the same ground over and over again and sometimes people are really really good at, at being able to describe uh, exactly what the message of that dream is and yet they don't do the next bit which is okay well now that you know what this is about what are you going to do about it yeah. they don't do that bit <laughs> so then the dream repeats so and, and it doesn't take much it doesn't take much to um, to help a client to to come to that understanding and, and uh, of what their dreaming mind is is suggesting and um, and using Jung's tool, which was essentially active imagination, mm-hmm. you can re-enter dreams, you know, because yeah. that imaginative part of yourself is the part that creates the dream anyway. So by engaging with it imaginatively and carrying the dream on or changing elements of it and seeing where it would go after that, um, you can you can come to a deeper understanding of what that dream was about and maybe continuing it beyond an interruption, say, if you woke up in a nightmare or something like that. So th- there's lots and lots of work that, that can be done. Which Well, no, it is interesting if you look at, I mean, hy- hypnotherapists, many hypnotherapists tend to work with scripts. It becomes very formulaic. Um, whereas, yeah. you know, if you, as a hypnotherapist, if you do work with more with, uh, kind of freer boundaries and <clears throat> you work more from a kind of light trance con- conversational trance as it were <clears throat> then you can develop more of an intuition around uh, your client's needs and their perspective I I see uh, the uh, dream works the uh, the dream dreams as a therapeutic tool that's more on the scale of art as opposed to skill. Um, well, I think it's a mixture of both. You know, there's a science to it. But more so than uh, the, the other aspects of psychotherapy. Uh, yeah, well, it, there's there's a flexibility and, and there's a, a creative open play, uh, which, you know, when, uh, when you look at, for instance, Gestalt, psychotherapy psychodrama and, and so on there's tons of improv in that you know so um sure. it, it's, a, it's a similar type of process but what what i would say is that that the the unconscious mind works with metaphors and actually i mean we do you know we, we love metaphors and and uh, stories that we can get into that we we resonate with and so on and you know like you're saying there about hypnosis and and especially if, if people are coming at it more from a i'm doing something to you uh, perspective in hypnosis then we stay with the script the magic is in the languaging and therefore i just throw it at you and expect some change but mm. when you work with dreaming uh then what you're essentially doing is is eliciting a suggestion you're eliciting mes- metaphors from that client's own subconscious and then mm-hmm. feeding it back to them so when you design an intervention that utilizes dreaming or dream metaphors then you're you're speaking the language of that client, you know, and you're giving it back to them, and therefore it's more likely to hit. Yeah. So so th- this is where you know maybe start with scripts so you can feel comfortable in a particular style and process, knowing how to uh, initiate and terminate trance and so on, and do so safely. But you're really listening to the client and the client's process and feeding that back to them, and then that will help to to deepen their state and also. Uh, enrich their experience within it. Yeah, so one, one 
Uh, I mean, as you said, there, there are so many connections between the dream works and the hypnotherapy and uh, meditation and out of body and or shifting consciousness or expanding consciousness. So right. if, we, if we look at the dream state as a, a starting point here, uh, a lot of people, uh, I remember one person I was talking to, uh, we were talking about the dream state and she said, Oh, I kept showing up against this person and, uh, you know, it wasn't very pleasant at all. And, you know, I, I felt that this wasn't part of me at all because I can resonate with her at all. And I said, well, it is your subconscious and your subconscious is not of, oftentimes not available to you. So have you considered that it is an aspect of yourself that is showing up? It, the only way for it to show up is in the dream state because you've uh, you, you deactivated your frontal lobe um, and you are now able to freely associate with this. Um, but she, she was uh, very much holding on to her story, so it, it, she was not ready to make that uh, leap. But it is, so where do we, in the dream state, where do we go from, we are in the dream and everything we experience is a representation or an archetype of ourselves or a uh, uh, thought process within ourselves to expanding outside into consciousness. Because when we go into hypnosis, uh, as we talk about the different wavelengths, you go from uh, beta to alpha to uh, theta to uh, delta and omega, right? It, did I get that right? Yeah. Um, so when we're in, uh, when we go into delta state, we're essentially asleep. But our conscious, we, it's our body that's asleep, right? When we when we utilize meditation, for example, or hypnosis. Um, but when we're asleep, then obviously we've shut down the frontal lobe, so we're not conscious about it unless we do a lucid dream. That's when we activate the uh, frontal lobe and we become conscious in or consciously um, creating parts of or uh, creating our experience in the dream, not the dream itself. Um, so let's can we talk a little bit about you know all of these things in the uh, function of consciousness. Sure. Um, okay, so this is a massive topic. Let me see if I can if I can get 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 a, an, e an easy. I told you I wasn't going to make it easy for you. So. Then, oh no, no, that's fine. It's fine. Okay. So um, okay. So when, first of all, when we talk about brainwave states, we've got to be a little bit careful because the brain is sloshing all these states all all, all the time, you know. And um, what what we talk about are dominant states of of uh, frequencies in the brain, and there is when you're in deep sleep there is very much a, a rhythmic delta pulse that's going through the brain this is uh, 0.5 to 3 cycles per second and and you know that the brain's fast asleep then when when that starts to speed up a little bit more you enter theta 4 to 7 cycles per second and that's a that's normally where dreaming is is taking place not always but you know you can be pretty confident that if you wake someone up from theta that that they will or a dominant theta that they will be dreaming something mm -hmm. and so there's a there's a few parts to this first of all when we fall asleep the frontal lobe kind of goes offline but not completely mm -hmm. the, what what goes offline is uh our metacognitive functions 
so we don't question what it is that we're experiencing what we what we do is we um, act very appropriately to whatever's going on in the environment so people don't do mad stuff in their dreams they do things that are appropriate to whatever the situation is which might seem mad right? <laughs> yeah. so it's like okay if i'm riding the Loch Ness monster but i'm riding it and it's appropriate to the situation mm. um, we, we don't end up doing usually don't end up doing things that we would not do in this reality but so so the the but being aware of being aware is something that's outside of 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 our capability within the dream and when we switch on that awareness of awareness then that's when we enter lucid dreams so we know we're dreaming while it's happening yeah. now that's a useful state but it isn't essential for, for our purposes here of, of really getting to know ourselves at a, at a very deep level so when we first go into the dream we enter our personal uh, unconscious so these are as you were describing the elements of the self which um, are you or your personal individual identity uh, related to your individual sense of self. So if I meet my mother, my father, my brother, whoever, um, that's all me. And we tend to do this a lot when we tell people about our dreams. Oh, Christopher, I was dreaming about you last night and blah, blah. Well, you weren't. You were dreaming about yourself playing the role of Christopher, mm. right? And just like that person who you're speaking with, I met somebody who I really disliked um, and I didn't resonate with them. Well, of course, you don't resonate with your shadow. That's why it's the shadow. As, as Jung would say, these are possibly the neglected parts of the self that have been pushed into the background. So they're not going to look like you and um, they're not going to feel like you. And you're going to reject them in some way, usually, or just plain ignore them. And... You know, those parts might uh, be stronger than others. You know, there's, there's various shadows. There are shadows which are to do with um, various unmet needs, uh, things that you push out of your psyche because maybe your, your, uh, your society, culture, personal relationships, whatever, just uh, won't or you think they won't accept uh, them. And, and, um, and so, you know, let's, let's not think that I want that. And... Um, I mean, we see this in spiritual circles as well. There could be a part of you that really wants to drive a Ferrari. Oh, no, I couldn't possibly think of having material goods and so on. You know, <laughs> so that, that becomes a shadow, right? right. Even, in the, even in a spiritual game, it becomes uh, um, the, the shadow of the spiritual ego, essentially. So th there, there's, there's various shadows, but they're also untapped potential. You know, you choosing to go down one road will naturally cast a shadow in another direction. So if I, you know, as a child was really uh, into art and uh, creative drawing, for instance, but then life choices have taken me elsewhere, there's going to be a part of me that says, hey, you know what, well, this is here, but it's not been developed. So what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And you might just look at it and say, well, actually, this isn't my path. I'll create in different ways so you can integrate it in something else. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go back to drawing. Um, but that, that's how the, the untapped potential shadow can show itself. So it's not all dark negative stuff. And so first of all, we bring more and more awareness to different parts of ourselves. And that's the immediate area that you, uh, you find yourself in, in, in the vast majority of dreams. However, through intention, and possibly not, you know, sometimes uh, different circumstances can influence this, but you can certainly use your intent to go deeper and, and co connect with more of a collective. And so this then starts to go drill through the dream space and into what starts to become a little bit of a weird territory because there's now an interconnected space where 
um, everybody's psyche meets, <laughs> you know, and some refer to this as the potentiality and, and you know, those various terms um, that those who explore non-duality find this um, in, in, a, in find it by letting go of everything essentially it's not a destination and and so everything all experience all dual experience arises from this potentiality and although that might sound a little bit weird you go into this potentiality every single time you go into deep sleep because you dissolve the separate sense of self and and that becomes completely obliterated and then there's just this oneness but we're not conscious of it and then uh, out of this oneness comes another story which is the dream life so that's another dual state and you interact with the world and so on and then you lose that again it dissolves back into the oneness so this repeats itself throughout the the, the, the night and then you come into this one which is a little bit more habitual <laughs> you know and it's a little bit more permanent than the ones in the dream state but you can still experience the oneness in this waking state as well uh we quite well, I, I like i like the term that tim freak uses in soul story and oh well actually he uses it also in a, another book of his uh called deep awake you know so we can have this deep awake state where the, this there's this uh oneness connection so knowing that you're both separate as a sense of self and that you're connected um to all that is so yes. so um uh, i am the one <laughs> you know <laughs> uh and and that that is um both it's not mm -hmm. a it's not a an either you can have an and you can know that you're a se separate sense of self and you can be the observer of all of that from which it arises and you can have yeah. that in, the, in in the in the nighttime as well or in in deep sleep where the the terms usually used um i know the in in the in the uh, Dzogchen tradition, for instance, they refer to it as like the luminous emptiness. So it's it's this potentiality uh, and and uh, Zen. They refer to it as the unborn, where yeah. the gnosis, however you want to come across it. But it's this yeah, unmanifested, right? Right. So it's it's. Um, but the thing about a potentiality is that it wants to be expressed, otherwise it wouldn't be a potentiality. And therefore, uh, for whatever reason, it, it expresses itself and, and becomes everything that we, we experience in duality. So um, from one perspective, from another perspective, nothing moves. <laughs> so <laughs> that they, but they, this is... Always the paradox. Right, yeah. Well, it's paralogical, you know. That, that's, yeah. that's the... Again, another term by Tim Freak, which I really like, is that you, you can hold both at the same time. It, 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 it's not a, an either-or. Yeah, so the so now we're, we're in the collective consciousness, essentially. Yes. Right? So we've, in, the, in the sleeping state, we've expanded into the collective consciousness, uh, which there, there are several research studies done on collective consciousness to prove that it is an actual real thing uh, real thing we have uh, the princeton uh, university collective collective consciousness study right i think that's what it's called um that can show that when there are big events in the world they have these uh, random uh, oh the the global consciousness project and yes um, yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you get into this global coherence and suddenly random number generators stop being random. Yeah. And, and you know, you can map that and they've been mapping it for years. I mean, Roger Nelson was massive in, in setting that up. And, um, you know, you, 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 what we um, 
note in the in the collective is that there is what we think is separate is is just an illusion mm. and you know but this this can happen in very small levels as well it doesn't require millions of people focusing on a on a, a major world event you know it can it, it also happens when um you're just walking down the street and suddenly you start thinking of a friend and suddenly your phone rings and it's them yeah. um you know almost everybody's had that experience and yeah. uh, and it can be someone who you haven't thought about for absolutely ages as well you know yeah. so it's not like there's just a but you know okay you can play the law of big numbers to explain it away but there's just something else going on um and and a lot of examples like that um and and i notice it in therapy as well you know when, when i'm really uh, in coherence with my clients then some information just becomes apparent you know i will use a particular metaphor that um just seem to come out of nowhere and and um just resonates deeply with the client yeah yeah they, they've just been thinking about that how did you know i just saw something about that this morning or whatever um and you know suddenly we're on the same page and and it helps the the therapy flow easier as well so well i mean open to that data i mean we do talk quite a lot about intuition in in uh, in the coursework and you know in that it is one of those tools that you use in in the therapy uh, or therapeutic relationship um, but so. it, intuition is not something that you know science has been able to put any type of uh, finger on as it were because it, it really is one of those tough things to uh, uh, empirically uh, prove that it's there and we'll, we'll i think we'll um, i want to talk about the um, research that is being done on consciousness as well but uh, let's so we've uh, we go into the awakened state now and look at consciousness right so let's uh, from your perspective and we can talk about different schools of philosophy here as well but from your perspective what is consciousness I think um, it's a really big term, that isn't it? You know, it's it's one of the things that when we try to define it, we move further away from it. In my opinion, consciousness is the most intimate thing that we all know but can't describe. <laughs> it's it's. Um, I would say that it's the potentiality interacting with itself. Yeah. That, that that's the basic, maybe for me, the definition of what consciousness is. You know, the, the, and and everything else is <laughs> everything else is uh, a languaging that that doesn't quite capture it. So, in terms of uh, individual consciousness, uh, do you subscribe to the notion that we are uh, multidimensional beings uh, with infinite number or infinite? Uh, consciousness that we can experience many different infinite number of uh, uh, situations at any given one time i i would say that um we're definitely multi-dimensional beings we we can experience that immediately just by knowing that there's there's a part of your consciousness which is locked in this reality physical matter reality and then there are unconscious things that aren't <laughs> you know that, that have their own agendas sometimes and and you know you, i mean i just take a client who um you know has has weight issues and will tell me that 
they want to stop eating a packet of biscuits every time they're, they're watching Netflix, you know, and, and as they're saying that to themselves, I need to stop eating these biscuits, their hand is reaching for the next biscuit, you know. So there's already a dimensional shift there. Mm. Um, but in terms of uh, going even further out, then yes, I, I do believe that we operate on, on many different levels, um, that there's maybe uh, a level which is very much in the here now, physical matter reality, which is dealing with survival instincts and, and you know, dealing with um, the biological basis of being uh, an individual, you know, so that has... Uh, a brain that's evolved uh, 300,000 uh, years ago in the savanna and, and is, is concerned with fight or flight responses um, and, and staying safe. And then there's another part that you can sink into this deep being, um, which is accessible through meditation, that knows that everything's safe. And that will just say, no, you're doing the best you can, go for it. And we can call on that, we can ask for guidance and so on, but the usual message that people come to, which can actually already be frustrating when they ask, um, you know, what should I be doing? How should I be doing it? And so on. It's like, well, just, just do something. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. Is that right? Yes. You're, you're doing right? it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You, you're doing it. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, you, you just go and experience. Because, you know, from from a potentialities perspective, if you could even take that, from, from the, the perspective of oneness, everything's permitted. Because it's all, you know, everybody's taking consciousness to places it's never been before. Because it's never been the configuration of, of a particular individual at this point in time. So everything is new in every moment, everywhere across the planet, you know. So there's there's always new data coming back in into the oneness and, and uh, enriching that in some way, you know. That, that's in improving uh, um, uh, how it functions essentially and, and how efficiently it can function so yeah. there's there's that uh, universal kind of evolutionary drive built into the the fabric of reality which um, you know what we're doing is is an expression of that mm. and some some things that we do put us more in resonance with that drive and other things don't you know so when we go into more of those fear-based beliefs then that usually puts us at odds with this uh with this evolutionary drive which is designed essentially to start to expand uh, and cultivate more of our free will so and, what's what's your thoughts on the the theory just catching up on your that it's a new thing that's happening every moment uh, that there is no such thing as time and space because everything that is has ever happened and will ever happen is already happening it's a tricky one this you know from from one perspective i, I would agree with that from another one it that makes absolutely no sense um from from where i am right now as an individual being then time is the only thing that i can actually guarantee um, Absolutely, I, I, in, the, in this physical, uh, you know, I, I am. I we we learn. Well, I mean, we communicate because of time. Yeah. Because you know the words and the sounds came out in a sequence and hit you in sequence, and therefore you made sense of it. You know, and and so we we need time to organize the data. So time is is vital to to uh, a dual system, and but you can slip outside of that process, and and so then. You, you connect to the oneness, but it's not experiencing anything, and therefore um, it's static. So from one end, it's like, oh, you connect with the oneness, but there's no growth in that. 
So then you slip back into time, which is what we're doing, and then and then suddenly things start flowing and growing again. But from another perspective, that doesn't mean anything, you know. It's it's because the potentiality for everything was already there and organized in in some way. So we can slip back into time and and notice snapshots, or we go back into the the one that's dissolved itself completely, and then everything's still again. But I, I think that idea of slipping into no time with this level of consciousness is is kind of illusory as well you know that that there was time because you were starting from some place then you went into that and then you came back out well that implies that there was an organizing function and therefore time so um, if you look at some when you slow down your brain waves and you shift into uh, kind of the between state of the potentiality and this uh, reality consciousness or consciousness in this reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, especially when you work with clients and you get into that flow and you kind of put yourself into that mode, uh, oftentimes you are able to see things before they even happen. Uh, so, you know, psychic readings, this is typically what they do, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, so, and it's, it's interesting, you know, that there's, because, in one sense, that kind of implies there isn't free will in the system, you know, that something is, is there's a predetermined uh, process. And yet then um, others would argue that, well, the future is a probability. And so you can get a heads up on information like that because of the, the way the probabilities are lining up. But you can also then change that, mm-hmm. you know. And, and this is uh, also when it comes to things like uh, manifestation work, law of attraction and so on. That's what we're kind of doing. We're setting the intent to tweak those probabilities yeah. in our favor. So, and then, and you know, I mean, you see the effects of that in, in some cases, they, they can be quite tremendous. So th- there is this um, a tension, I suppose, mm-hmm. between saying that something, there is no time and everything's fixed and actually, oh, but I can influence certain things as well. But then, <laughs> you know, then, if, you go, then if you go into the philosophy or the theory of uh, parallel universes where mm-hmm. every every choice that I take, so for example, me moving my hand this way or using uh, one word or another, I'm always making decisions every split moment of every day. So, and every choice I have there, every time there is another universe create or uh, an aspect of my consciousness experiencing the other choice. Right. Well, there is that. Um, or there's the potentiality of that that spirals yeah. out. Now you need an observer of it. So does that, th- th- this is kind of where um, you know maybe it, it could become very confusing because you would say, okay, well, there's absolutely almost infinite uh, versions of the self in yeah. in, in uh, uh, so so which stream are you navigating at any one time? You know because uh, because who's leading it? You know, well, that, or do that they become, lead it, and and therefore you get infinite on top of infinite because each yeah. of those can then choose after that, and so on. In which case, you can. Uh, well, yeah. it's a little bit the um, the work. If you look at the work of Eckhart Tolle, with the uh, observer observing the observer, and the observer observing the observing observer, mm-hmm. uh, so you, and you draw it out to that level, and that's kind of where I feel the you have the the consciousness that is here, we can't 
if we were to be aware of every aspect of our consciousness uh, in parallel universe, uh, parallel universes, having experiences, uh, we wouldn't be able to function because we're, we're supposed to play this role here right now. So, and there's well, another, we, aspect, uh, uh, <laughs> another aspect uh, of me doing that. In well, we, we, can, we can just about function here now. I mean, you know, yeah. they, they, they measure this sort of stuff, like, you know, your conscious mind can process 110 bits of data at any one time, yeah. you know, and they, they guesstimate that it's about 2 million for your unconscious mind. So just in that, you know, just take one from the other and you see how much... Um, the decision space is is not available to the the conscious mind, and yet you're processing a ton of information um, outside of that awareness. And and really, you know, coming back to the dream work, then um, the majority of dreams are your unconscious working stuff out. And yeah. outside of the awareness of the conscious mind, it doesn't need the conscious mind to be doing that. Uh, to be analyzing it, to be working with it, and so on. It just becomes interesting when the conscious mind becomes interested in the unconscious material, and then it gets included in the in the uh, the developmental, uh, analytical, and then integrative process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's parts of ourselves that are operating quite happily outside of our conscious awareness uh, of this physical reality that uh, are parts of the self. You know that, that govern. Uh, the cell far more than what we uh, consciously give it credit uh, for. So th- there, is, there, is, there is already that argument that, you know, we're not always fully here and, and yeah. you're not, you're not going to become conscious of it. You know, 110 bits are not going to expand to 2 million. Mm-hmm. So even when, when you get these meditative practices that say, you know, that just be here in the now, in the present, become aware of everything, it's just not going to happen. Well, you know, you, you can you can do your best in staying as present as possible, but don't you you just won't be able to process everything that goes on unconsciously. It's uh, it's not the role of the conscious mind to ever be able to do that. Uh, but it's it's um, I mean, our brain we have the uh, reticular activating system that right. brings your attention to what is mm-hmm. I, either the what your subconscious feels is important at that time or you're, you're consciously directing your brain towards. Um, so I suppose that works in, there might be a function of that in the subconscious as well, uh, or that the subconscious is activating the uh, reticular activating system in the conscious or in the brain as it were. Um, to direct your attention to changes in your body, your uh, mental body or your uh, energy body, your spiritual body that, uh, that you need. To, and that's what I feel we can train ourselves to do in meditation and, yeah, very and much so. Uh, so that when we, because the, I run a, um, uh, psychometry class every week and uh, where the goal, obviously we're playing around with it to, just have that fun and but the experience is really to understand where is my my baseline in terms of my physical mental energetic spiritual uh, bodies or my astral bodies where is my baseline so if there is a change in any of them that i can pay attention to it and say hmm where does this come from so perhaps i get uh, pain in my uh, in my stomach or I have an emotion that uh, uh, comes up and I can ask the question, Oh, well, this came up. Okay. Does this belong to me? And for a lot of people out there that are so-called empaths, 
uh, more often than not, it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to someone else. Um, like you were saying, that you think about someone and they call, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be through the phone. They can come through energetically as it were. So I, I think that our, there's an internal wisdom that is far beyond our capabilities. So that probability you were talking about before, I think is very much real where we have this inner or higher wisdom that can calculate those probabilities in a split second. Whereas for us mathematically sit down and do it would take uh, quite a few years uh, to do, right? right. Um, and I think that's part of that inner wisdom that we pick up on as well on uh, when it comes to intuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so well, how, and, and, how yeah. do you feel that plays in? Yeah, well, I mean, in, intuition is, you know, the, it, it is growing in terms of um, the, even within within the standard paradigm here, the materialist paradigm, we are seeing that they wouldn't use that term intuition, but um, we know that the brain extends beyond the head, mm-hmm. right? We know that we can measure um, neuronal activity essentially through the through the uh, vagal system and and uh, the polyvagal system and and uh, so you notice things in the heart very strong um, uh, resonance there and and in the gut you know I mean forty million neurons in the gut you know the it's like the size of a cat brain I think uh, it was described and and so there's a ton of information that comes in uh, beyond the head and and just knowing that and knowing that. Um, not all of it has to be worked out in the head. It opens us up to exactly what you're saying, you know, in, in terms of I notice a, a particular emotion, a sensation in the body. So you move more into the felt sense and that might not have language to it and you can take it language, you know, eventually. Yeah. Um, but the first instance is to not try to interpret that and just stay with it as as uh, um, the the sensation that's, that's being felt and... and allowing it to develop allowing it to move through the body is it hot is it cold does it have a a tingling is it is it sharp is it you know and and so you're looking for qualities and so on which shapes and um, textures and colors and absolutely people experience it in many different ways but you know we we know from experiments that um you can measure uh things like a preference of a of a particular object or a food or whatever a particular photograph up to about six seconds uh, uh, before the brain in the head does, mm-hmm. you know, by, by noticing the reaction in the body. Yeah. And, and, and it makes the researchers almost like uh, psychics, you know, because they, they will tell you what you're about to choose um, because you think that you're making it up on the spot and your body's given that information away six seconds ago. So th- this is also something that, you know, if we can start to open up how we... Uh, perceive and it's not just about moving out of the head it's about including the head the heart the gut Mm -hmm. in um, a a total body process you know a whole brain process that allows us to it's a trifecta isn't it yeah 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 definitely and and, you know i mean in buddhism they refer to it as the three diamonds don't they Mm -hmm. um you know when when they're talking about the head uh, the is principally the the forehead or the third eye location and the heart and and the the um, sacral chakra as as the as the three uh, the three diamonds, and you know we we once we align those, then we get a a lot of information, a lot of 
intuitive information that they can feed into the brain that then feeds back and and so you become a lot more receptive as well and and you know this is the attitude that i take into both the work that i do with the monroe institute and when i'm working with my client i just sit a moment and align the sensors and uh, you know okay i'm open to receive let's see what comes Mm-hmm. And, and this then, you know, the, it, it moves me away from being a purely cognitive uh, structure in front of a, a, another person who then I see as a purely cognitive structure. You know, the, 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 there's much more depth in that individual that you'd be giving them credit for if we're just trying to think our way through problems all the time. Because, you know, th- that's only one way of doing it. Well, I think what one of the challenges or I suppose that, that keeps us busy in, in the therapeutic realm uh, is that people, we, we are conditioned to only trust what is external to us. So we, are, we only trust what comes through our eyes, mouth, nose, skin, and our uh, ears. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the fact that these are in uh, their... They're uh, operating independently, and they are specific to their actual function. Um, well, that, that's that's how it seems, but that's not what actually happens. Yeah. You know, th- th- because there's nothing external. <laughs> no. You know, that, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. That might sound a little bit weird, but everything is constructed. Yeah. And and so that that's not to say that it's all idealism. There is there is. Um, uh, objective reality to things, you know. I'm not going to say that I constructed that bus that's about to hit me, you know. But the colours of that bus and, and this motion and, and how how it's uh, how, how it's uh, uh, speeding towards me and so on is it seems like a, a seamless movie, and it isn't, you know. That the my brain is interpreting sensory data and constructing a world through that, and that is is um, based on information of very specialized uh, sensory organs which you know if you look at the eye and the structure of the eye I mean if you were to say what does reality look like from the perspective of the eye it's upside down back to front s- totally stretched there's blood vessels maybe about 30 40 percent of the um, visual field is is full of blind spots so all of that and and it's taking photographs you know <laughs> uh, so, so that's not what I experience when I open my eyes you know then yeah. and, and it's attuned to what is it one tenth of a trillion of the electromagnetic spectrum you know so it doesn't even perceive all of the electromagnetic spectrum yeah. so what's out there is is not actually what I'm able to perceive um, it's what I've been able to perceive because of of uh, my evolutionary heritage, you know, and and you know that you get insects that can perceive ultraviolet light and and uh, and so on, and and so th- this is also something that you know when when people go into um, expanded states of consciousness, they try to take those habits of perception with them, and then say, oh, I don't see anything, I don't, I don't perceive colors in the same way, and whatever. You're why would you? You're not taking your physical eyes with you. You're not you're not taking your senses with you. You're taking replicas, and so maybe you can perceive in ways that are beyond those. You know, if you start to open up your perceptual faculties a bit more, and that's usually what happens. You know, like I I was telling you the weekend when when I or the the week long program when when I go out of body, for instance, I don't see in the classic sense in my lucid dreams. I do. 
um, but in an out of body state, I I feel everything, yeah. and and it's like I have an expanded felt sense, and I know where everything is, and I can touch everything. I know the texture of everything, um, even before I reach out with a non physical hand and touch it. And it's a bit like a bat would feel the uh, perceive the environment using echolocation. So th this blended sense of touch and sight is what I experience. And, you know, maybe synesthesics might report something similar. Uh, it's hard to describe in the language of this reality because it's not something that we tend to experience, but it's not visible light spectrum. Well, that's exactly what I mean, that most people that are not, we, we tend to be uh, living in the external world as opposed to living and experiencing the external world from our, from our internal uh, senses. Uh, I usually describe it as uh, all your in internal senses, or there are more internal senses than you have external, but all your internal senses are all interchangeable. Right. Uh, so you can uh, taste color and you can hear smells and all of that good stuff, depending on where your predominant uh, uh, clair, as they call them, uh, is. Uh, I understand. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you could perceive in other ways as well. You know, so there's the, the typical. Uh, physical senses as we call them but then you might just intuit information you might just get a download you might you know there's a knowing that just suddenly comes and you think well where does that come from um and you know when when bob monroe uh who set up the monroe institute you know when he was having these experiences he would get sometimes what he called a rote um which was just a thought ball of information and he said he used to take him weeks and months to unravel it you know it was just sometimes it, it, is. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't yeah yeah exactly it wasn't linear yeah. you know it was just like here here's a download and it's like you know now we might have an analogy of somebody just sharing dropbox folder with you yeah <laughs> you know it's just like well, yeah, it's all in shambles there are no folders just, anywhere. Yeah, yeah yeah absolutely and it's like pieces of pictures and uh pieces of, all the words are scrambled everywhere and yeah yeah, but, but slowly but surely, your higher wisdom kind of puts it all together, and as you experience things, things resonate, and you start things start to click, right? Right. Um, no, absolutely, and it's it is interesting, uh, you know, if we take the uh, situation with or comparison, you're uh, talking about the bus, uh, the color of the bus that is going to hit you. If you were out of body in that state but you are recognizing the the environment that you're in as your physical reality that bus could still hit you but you wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't get hurt but it would still hit you you'd still feel like ouch um i had that experience at the uh, uh, at the retreat i was uh, so you go into um, these exercises and you lay in a dark room lay on your bed and then listen to these um, uh, sounds or you have headphones on and there's this uh, audio going. Uh, and uh, so I was laying there listening and suddenly find myself, well, I was suddenly find myself back in my body after having kicked the chair in the bedroom I was in. Um, and it was, and I kicked it because it was dark uh, not realizing that I didn't need to have light to see anything, <laughs> but what, what was it was like so quick, and I find myself back in my body, and I could feel the sensation of having kicked the chair on my foot. Yeah. So 
Now, shifting gears into talking about that kind of consciousness, because now, you know, we, I mean, science can't determine what consciousness is. So they basically say it's a function of the brain. End of story, right? Yeah, by, byproducts of brain functioning. And, yeah. you know, and, and I'm really interested in that. You know, I mean, you won't be able to see this, obviously, because this is a podcast, but the, uh, you know, I've got books behind me about cognitive neuroscience. I was really big into that. But I've never found a study that says how the brain generates consciousness. Yeah. They can really pick out a lot of details about this bit seems to be implicated in that. There's a correlation between if you turn this off, then maybe you lose color perception or a sense of smell, et cetera, et cetera. But it never says how perception, how reality is constructed, how the sense of self is constructed and so on. So it says very little about the subjective experience, which is the most intimate thing we know about consciousness. We know consciousness exists because here we are having an experience of being alive of being able to perceive from your perspective from my perspective and i'm a subjective uh um, individual observing a world of objects and from where you are you're doing exactly the same thing so it's the most intimate thing we know and yet in in all of the uh, studies that have been done in in neuroscience and no matter how good the instruments get fmri and fners and all that that kind of stuff they, they say very little about the how and and so this is, you know, where I um, kind of deviated from that path. I said, okay, what what I don't buy into so much is that consciousness is a byproduct of brain functioning. It's an epiphenomenon, as the term goes. And actually, there's a lot more to it. And I think neuroscientists there are, are, are you know, they, I don't think there are many neuroscientists now who'd really buy into that they, because of the the neuroplastic nature of the brain and how consciousness influences the brain and vice versa. You know, there, there's a two-way street there that, that you know, that people are a lot more aware of the interplay. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's still a long way to go with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just find it interesting that this is the one field where science science gets really lazy and just dismisses it. Uh, so we don't know, so therefore we're going to resign it to this. Um, so it's it's just a interesting. Uh, uh, well, it, dep- it depends who as well, though. You know, I mean, there are many scientists who are researching it from the perspective that you know that there's more going on, and oh, you sure. just have to look at the Institute of Noetic Sciences as an example. Uh, you, you mentioned the University of Virginia. You know, the Department of Perceptual Studies there. I mean, there are people out there, and that, that's not just two organizations, but the, the, the uh, research labs. There are many, many all over the place that are looking at this. So uh, what will invariably happen is a paradigm shift will take place at some point, and then some of the old guard will go, oh, yeah, we already knew that, and they'll just ju- jump ship, you know. But while uh, while while people are so entrenched and, and, and kind of invested, actually I don't say kind of, very invested because of their career choices and whatever in their fields, then they're going to talk that game. Yeah. You know, to to get published and and whatnot. So unfortunately, still is science um, is a is a method, and I'm very much a scientist at heart. You know, I I experiment and I I use myself as a lab essentially, um, and repeat and it's repetitive. You know, it's something that you can you can repeat and um, recreate. It, it, yeah. 
Yeah, so you know, the, you, you keep going in, and and uh, okay, means that there's multiple subjective truths. Fine, but you know, you can find consistency in your own practice and whatever else. And you know, maybe maybe one day that there will be a common ground in how we explain these kind of. Well, uh, I think I think that with the emergence of uh, the quantum physics and all of that, there there are explanations that are coming coming about now. That people are, are attempting it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> So in terms of so now we go we know what consciousness is because we feel it but we don't need to label it or describe it per se because it's something we just know and feel. Um, so now we're we're awake but we are inducing uh, with body at sleep mind awake um, and we go and we explore worlds outside uh, our body. Um, now when I was a kid. Similar to you, I had. Well, I grew up in a house where the basement was a part of a 12th century monastery. Um, so we had a lot of uh, fun activities in the house, energetically speaking. Um, and I, I always felt there were people watching me, and especially walking up the stairs from the kitchen, there was an energy up in the corner in the ceiling, and I would always turn around and say hello, you know. Um, because I've just felt things around me. I couldn't see it because uh, like you, I feel things. I don't see it necessarily. Um, uh, but I thought everybody did that. I thought that was kind of just the norm. And yeah, we, we have, you know, I used to call them ghosts. I don't know if they were ghosts or <laughs> whatever they were. Um, but then I uh, shut that down until uh, kind of reawakened uh you know, five years ago, uh, and I kind of went on this journey. Um, so now, when we go into these different levels of, or, uh, you know, uh, focus levels, as you call them at the Monroe Institute, where we can experience different aspects of consciousness, um, where we can go and help, uh, you know, people that have passed on to kind of, uh, go across the bridge, as it were, uh, go towards the light or uh, whatever ex experiences people have. Um, so now, what are we doing with our consciousness? Are we experiencing different uh, dimensions? Because you can exist in this reality with your uh, out-of-body experience, or you can go to the astral plane, or you can go to what is it that we are experiencing? And from what perspective are we experiencing it? Yeah, that, that's that's a great question. Um, we're moving our awareness around. We're moving our noticing around, and so it's it's not necessarily having to go anywhere. It's a bit like saying, you know, just notice your foot right now. Mm. It's like where, where, what what just moved, and where was your foot before that? You know, so so it's it's paying attention a bit more to where you exist at different times or different uh in in different spaces and and um the analogy that's used a lot of the monroe institute is that of the radio and and so um this level of reality is what we call consciousness one or c1 consciousness or physical matter reality but that's one radio station now when you're tuned into a radio station it doesn't mean that all the other ones are not in existence they're still there you just don't notice broadcasting <laughs> right so so the broadcasting from the field from that oneness is just everywhere anywhere 
So you, you could tap into any of that. But what we, we're so used to doing is just being here. And we have our physical senses to thank a lot for that and our own beliefs and intentions and whatever else, um, unconscious biases and, and the like. So that's why a lot of meditation is, um, you know, shut your eyes to get rid of that external competition. Now you focus inwards, and that's really like turning the radio dial. So when you, f when you focus your intent on entering a state of mind away, body asleep, then that's where you'll get to. Your body will fall asleep because actually you're not really in it. You know, it's just moving your mind away from it. Most of the time we're not in our bodies anyway, you know, and, and I know that sounds a little bit weird, but again, remember your feet. You probably forgot them again. And so th this, is, this is the thing. It's very easy to move your mind away from your body. And people can do very complex things. You know, we talk about this in, in hypnosis all the time. You know, you're driving a car on a familiar route. You're not in the car. You're thinking about what you're going to be doing that evening, what you're going to be cooking, etc. So your mind isn't with your body. You've changed radio stations. You've moved it. And yet your body's still able to perform very complex behaviors like driving a vehicle and getting you home, essentially. So that, that's what we call phasing. Yeah. So you can phase from one reality into another, just just turning the radio dial. And you can do that um, quite effectively. You can have an out-of-body experience where you just intend your awareness to be somewhere else, wherever that is. And that might have the perception of actually taking an energy body with you, or you might just jump your consciousness somewhere else. You don't have to have uh, a body as such mm. you're still perceiving in a way so i suppose that's a body but you, you take your mind away then you can return by phasing uh, so you know maybe 90 percent of your awareness is in that space and 10 percent is still with your body and notices something that's not quite right now you shift the other way so you're you're maybe 80 percent back in your physical body and 20 percent is connected there and you notice that you've kicked something you go ow now you make your adjustment and you shift your awareness back again. So now you're 70% there and 30% in your body and so on. And, and you know, when, when people click into the very classic out-of-body experience, they're like 100% there. Yeah. Right? That's why it's like, oh, my God, that was an immersive reality. Oh, you, move, you move your energy body with or yeah, your consciousness exactly. with the energy body, yeah. Exactly. And so that's that's why it feels like, oh, wow, I was completely separate. But you weren't, you know what I mean? It was, it was a focusing act. And, and when we do things like remote viewing, where we're gathering information from a distance, I mean, you could be writing, you could be sat right here like you are right now, you could be drawing things, writing, so you're fully engaged in this reality and in another one at the same time. And getting veridical information, you know, that's what the experiments, I mean, even the, the ones that were declassified, uh, were looking at, you know, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of, of, of hits. Yeah. Um, where people, you know, shouldn't have been able to get anything. Mm. You know, they should have just been making up random stuff, and yet they were making up random stuff that just happened to correspond with their target. Yeah, I mean, um, we're doing some of those experiments at at the retreat as well with yeah. the 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 actual um, coordinates that you, you guys used at the uh, uh, they used in America, the Monroe Institute, and mm. yeah, I mean, the fact that picking up on shapes and stuff like that uh, yeah. and you know, train and, and lines it, and what have you. It's uh, yeah, yeah. very it's, cool. It's, it's incredible. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an art of, of un, unlearning to read almost, you know, yeah. that, that rather than, uh, you know, you see a squiggle and it's an upright, don't think that that's a letter I, that's just an upright line, mm. you know, and, and it's, it's, this is how you, you're training yourself to perceive in, in altered states because we have a conditioning in this reality to put those squiggles together to make meaning. 
and that is that is part of the challenge, isn't it? And that's mm. going back to what we were saying before that we are so conditioned to that this reality we are seeing that is the only reality, and we right. that's the only reality we can trust. So yes. now moving inwards and being able to trust information that is coming through from some seeming, well, coming from nowhere, really, giving you information about the location, just because you looked at coordinates that mean absolutely nothing to you. Mm -hmm. um, and you now actually start to pick up information that you shouldn't really know anything about, right? Right, and and just just to clarify that as well, we don't always use coordinates. So it's not like somebody yeah, no. says, oh, okay, well, you've got a photographic memory, you memorize the map, and so you can literally just write Mickey Mouse, go. Yeah. And, and and that 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 would bring up evidential data if you called yeah. that target that yeah. so so th this is you know it's like what 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 you're tuning into the is is a resonance mm -hmm. you know it's a vibration of that space uh, how that feels for you at that moment in time what are you picking up through all of your senses and suddenly impressions start to come and then you know it, it's th there isn't an obvious mechanism for that you know, you've not literally gone to that location. You couldn't have. You sat there where you are. You know, you or you're led there, listening to some frequencies or something. So, the 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 act of being able to access uh, that that independently, you know, and, and get it. Uh, but you know, it does come to that point that you were making there, which is that we measure the veracity of experience on uh, as the benchmark or the foundation of that is is this reality. You know, if if it if we can validate this uh, this reality from an altered state, then that must have been a real experience. And if it wasn't, then it isn't. Mm. You know, and, and people really doubt whether uh, they had the experience, or they'll say things like, "Have I made it up? Am I sure that it's not just my imagination?" Very typical um, responses. And of course, it's your imagination. But what what, what is that? You know, if you yeah. can tell me what imagination is, then. <laughs> then uh, you've kind of solved the philosophical conundrum that's lasted forever. You know? <laughs> uh, of course, it's going to feel like your imagination. It's going to feel like you. I mean, I'd love this information to come to me independently in the voice of Morgan Freeman, but it's just going to sound like me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to sound like me. How else is it going to come? And, and how am I going to recognize it if it's not yeah. something that I'm aware of, you know, because otherwise I'm, um, you know, I'm just not going to perceive it. Yeah. You know, and sometimes people get to that. They get to states of consciousness. I've been there many times myself, where I say, I have no idea how to translate this experience into anything that corresponds to physical sensory input uh, and and expression and yeah. or verbal language. You know, I'll just sit there with a pen and think, I have no idea even how to begin to draw this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, when when you kind of find yourself on a you know, extraterrestrial planet uh, where colors exist that you wouldn't even know how to describe in in terms of this reality, right? And you go, yeah, and, or, or you're you're in you're in a reality that just doesn't have a a dual a, a counterpart. You know, yeah. there's just like there's there's a you there's know, no reference point. There's no reference point. You know, like the, these experiences where. Um, the closest we can describe it is like pure love. Yeah. You know, that, that we call it bliss or something. I mean, you know, if, even if somebody has like a Nirvana experience, you know, connection to pure bliss or whatever, that is nothing like that description. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> that, that experience 
was so mind blowing that they they were out of their mind to get to it. Yeah, <laughs> right? They, they, it was just like this is this is nothing like when when we use the word love. That this is nothing like anything you can experience in this reality. Yeah. I mean, we're talking total unconditional held safety, just understanding your immortality and and how you can't get anything wrong, all woven into one. You know, and and just what what that could feel like, you know. Well, it's like they describe in out of uh, in uh, near death experiences, or where they actually die and then come back, and right. they they don't want to come back, even though they know cognitively or intellectually that there's a bunch of people that are waiting for them to come back into their body. Yeah, because, uh, yeah they, they, they don't want to leave, leave because the, the feeling uh, of being uh, out mm. of body is just so wonderful. It's like... Yeah, there's, there's a euphoria to it, but there's also this knowing that yeah. everything is safe. Yeah. You know, it's a deep knowing of safety that whoever's left behind isn't left behind. You know, they're going through yeah. their process. You're going through yours. The suffering that they're experiencing is part of a process. It's a very deep level of acceptance. And, and, yes, absolutely. And this is more than the, the resigned acceptance. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll have to deal with it kind of acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's already been dealt with. Yeah, right. So there's a deep trust in that. Yeah. And and you know so th this is where I think well you know we we have these words but they don't they don't come close to capturing because they're, they're all combined into one and that that uh, whole is far greater than the sum of the parts the the descriptive words that we use to to encapsulate them and it's it's just uh, uh, you know ineffable yeah so the the consciousness when we shifted into these different radio stations when i work with the with the, uh, the psychometry i describe that more as receiving information uh, that's the right. way i kind of train them uh, my students because it, the purpose is really to connect with your body your different bodies and to connect with your intuition and, and understand and i use the uh, the metaphor of the uh, amf and uh, radio uh, myself um, but that, then they are in their body observing from their awareness um, the information that comes in now when we do remote viewing we we project our consciousness or we we uh, put our attention uh, somewhere else right so that's essentially what we're doing in an out-of-body experience, whether you are traditionally peeling out of your body with your energy body or you're putting your attention to a, a different dimension, essentially. So, for example, when we interact with uh, people that are no longer uh, body-bound, uh, they are released, they uh, their physical body is dead but they're still stuck in some sort of a uh, leafscape or astral plane of some sort um, now are we are we projecting our consciousness into that dimension to be able to interact with that because I, I oftentimes describe it the same way that we we can't see you know, energy is running around, right? We need to shift our or uh, our frequency to a level where we can perceive them, right? Um, and the same way for uh, higher 
beings or higher energies in order to interact with us, they actually have to lower their energy, which is far more difficult for them to do than for us to raise our energy. We're actually supposed to be a higher frequency, but we choose to be <laughs> much lower. So are we, in that case, are we shifting our uh, consciousness to that or the attention to that? Uh, would you be, be actually, actually be able to have a, a peel-out traditional out-of-body experience in that type of situation? Or Yeah, it, it, for me, that, that comes again back to the, the radio analogy. I mean, it's the same process. Right. You know, we're just turning the dial a bit more. You know, it, well, what you're talking about is frequency all the time. So, and some vibrations are higher and, and others are lower. That doesn't mean better or worse, by the way. That just means... Um, something's a higher frequency, right, <laughs> that's, right. and that's what it is. So you, you've some people are able to perceive energies as they're moving around. They're able to hold that frequency in this reality, so they, yeah. they stretch that band. They get they get the interference pattern, as it were. Um, you know, mediums who uh, know what they're doing and not not people who are charlatans. Um, they can be walking around in this reality and talking to spirit at the same time. You know, so they, they are tuned in, you know, they're, they're holding that frequency. So they're not necessarily able to project anything, you know. That, that, that's one way that we can conceptualize it, uh, a metaphor we use to to um, suggest that we're going somewhere. But you, you, you can access all of it here, you know. You don't have to go anywhere. Well, that, that's kind of why I'm asking, because uh, when I trained uh, with my mediumship mentor, she always told me, you know, keep your eyes open. Mm-hmm. Because if you can bring, uh, be able to uh, connect or focus your attention on that at the same time as you're acting or functioning in this reality, and oftentimes when you're sitting with the client, you're not going to close your eyes and go, mm, uh, hold on a second, I need to shift my consciousness, you know, shift my vibration. You know, you need to, <laughs> you're still yeah. engaging with being present for the client, right? Right. Um, so that's why I was uh, wondering from your perspective, what uh, in terms of the out-of-body experience, if that is shifting a consciousness or just dialing into a different uh, well i think i think that that's it's the same process you know you 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 you're doing both uh, and they're, they're not different you know the, the, when i'm and, and also that there's other parts of me that can do different things are different uh, almost what seems like independently from what my conscious mind is doing, right? So um, just like right now, I'm not paying attention to my breathing and my pulse rate or blood pressure, digestion or whatever. There's a part of me involved in all of that in the background outside of my conscious awareness. There might be a part of me involved with communicating with somebody at a different level at the same time as I'm having a conscious experience with them and you know that and that can happen also in the dream space mm. you know so sometimes people have very difficult relationships on physical um levels and then in in an altered state in, a, in an expanded state of consciousness they resolve that somehow and and you know make, make that peace or whatever that needs to happen so it, it, you know what what i um when i'm in the therapy room and when i'm uh, especially when i'm um in the workshops i'm holding that space for myself and I'm holding that space for others and just allowing whatever needs to come in to come in at that moment. So th this is, this is um, the mindful stance, you know, it's, it's observing without judgment or preference 
and I and I also do that joyfully. You know, I'm saying, hey, I want to have fun with this because <laughs> yeah. you you can do it in a non-joyful way as well, which is a real hard stir. Like, okay, I'm not gonna move. Um, which to me <laughs> makes it a little more difficult, though. I find it. Uh, yeah, it makes it difficult, but people can do it. You know, and, and yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, but it's not the way I like to do it, right? Yeah. So, you know, I want to have fun in this in this reality because I think that's kind of one of the reasons why we're here as well. We get to play yeah. with energy in ways that we we can't on other realities, you know. Yeah. And we're cut off a lot more in this reality than on other planes where maybe things are a lot more thought responsive and intuitive and shared information and all that kind of stuff. You know, what we tap into in the collective, that's that's where we come from. That's, yeah. that's our natural state. We arise from that. So uh, this uh, this level of density that feels private and cut off is actually quite nice sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and, uh, like a retreat into my shell. Yeah, it's, it's a retreat, you know, and, and so... Um, and especially for myself, you know, I'm I'm quite a quite introverted. I mean, um, I certainly get my my uh, energy from really going inside myself, and and so it's it's nice to be uh, this level of of density as well. And and okay. so I explore other realities. Absolutely, uh, are they useful? Is the information useful? Do I have fun with it? Um, can I use it constructively with my clients or with my participants and uh, anybody else in my in my life, you know, and, and or just use it recreationally. I mean, you know, for the last year, there's been a lockdown and, and being able to go out of body or have lucid dreams has been really, really useful just to get out of that um, four walls sort of headspace, you know, and, and this yeah. has been. It's uh, just a, a nice tool to so at least have a bit of a break. <laughs> exactly, you can still go to the pub and uh, enjoy that uh, beer and the bad of body. So, <laughs> might be the only one there that you know of. <laughs> so the um, let, let's uh, kind of spend a little bit of time before we uh, uh, close down proceedings today to look at empirical peer-reviewed uh, research, right? So um, let's talk about, you know, consciousness, like we talked about, there are research being done on that, uh, but the whole concept of out-of-body, I know Jade Shaw has written a new paper on, on uh, I think she announced yesterday or something, mm -hmm. um, on out-of-body experiences, um, but also let's look at mediumship and, you know, energy healing and all of these aspects. I mean, energy healing is a whole other uh, realm that we haven't spoken about, but it does fit in very well with uh, what we're talking about. But let's look at some, because there is more and more research coming up and more and more institutions are gaining interest in this uh, these fields. So what studies are there and what's peer reviewed and what, what kind of conclusions are being made? Well, conclusions are tricky. <laughs> uh, you know, most of the conclusions in the peer reviewed journals I've read is something is worthy of further investigation. Right. <laughs> that, okay. That's the, that's the, uh, we can reject the null hypothesis that nothing is going on. <laughs> kind of the baseline level um you know and i mean th these were going on way back in well i mean 
30, 40 years ago, you know, those kind of uh, meta-analyses were being done on psi effects and, and you know, ESP has been yeah. one of them, but, you know, um, so psi being telepathy and clairvoyance, clairaudience, those kind of uh, um, terms and and, uh, and psychokinesis, you know, so yeah. um, influencing matter on this level of reality using using mental means. Um, and, you know, the, the meta-analyses show essentially that um, the, the chances uh, of that happening are just astronomical. Uh, you know, the, 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 you, just, you just would not um, get that by, by fluke occurrence, you know, that something is going on. And w when you're talking about, like, we, you mentioned the, the Global Consciousness Project mm. and how um, they use random number generators. And, and, you know, for the benefit of others out there, random number generator essentially is, a, is an electronic version of a coin toss. So where you would flip a coin and say heads, tails, if I was to ask Christopher, you know, call heads, call tails, and he was doing it randomly, then heads and tails should land 50-50. Yeah. Now, his ability to, to call heads or tails accurately, you know, so yours, Christopher, should be 50-50, mm -hmm. you know, thereabouts, right, if we, we flip that coin 100 times. If you start getting 51, 49, if you start getting 52, 48, that um, is, is statistically significant because right. it means that there's a bias. Yeah, it means that it's random anymore. Mm. Yeah, so, so that's what the, the Global Consciousness Project finds um, regularly. That when there's a there's a, a worldwide event of, of significant note, in other words, a lot of people paying attention to what's going on in the news. So mm -hmm. things like 9/11 attacks and you know the tsunamis, but also things like uh, New Year's parties. You know, you can literally track them mm -hmm. uh, across the world as the time zone shifts uh, hour by hour. You know that there's lots of minds in coherence paying attention to an event, and therefore the randomness shifts, and it's no longer random. You know, you get a, a 51 or a 52-48 pattern. And that is statistically significant. Mm -hmm. It's not somebody levitating, you know, it's not Jesus walking on water, but in scientific terms, in peer-reviewed terms, that is pretty darn significant. Well, and I, I think the key there is also that, to note that the changes occurs before the actual event takes place. Absolutely. And, and, you know, th this is usually the, the uh, day or two before the event is actually well, happened. Before. It can be hours before. But, you I, know, think, I think the 9-11 was like uh, four hours before 9-11. Yeah, the first and, and people hit. were dreaming, you know, it, or, or dreaming about it a week before, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, and, and avoiding going into work that day and so on, you know, and, and or maybe getting on one of the planes. Yeah, know, so. I lived in New York uh, at that time, so I have oh. many stories from uh, colleagues and friends and yeah i know someone they were supposed to go in but they you know got stuck at home or whatever uh, yeah. there was it was an unusual amount of those kind of stories coming around yeah the, the, and you know the, there's there's uh so the, those are the things that you can uh, statistically validate in in a lab yeah. and that's what's the peer-reviewed double blind process you know the the experimenters don't know which way things are gonna go and and the the subjects don't know which way things are gonna go so it's it's as neat as you can get it even within the current paradigm mm -hmm. right and there's loads of research on that um if anyone's really interested i'd recommend looking at the work of dean Radin. Um, yeah. at the Institute of Noetic Sciences 
Um, I think his last book was, um, no, it wasn't super normal. He wrote another one after that, although that one is excellent, but um, it was uh, Real Magic, I think he called it. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's, and you'll find all the peer-reviewed research articles on there um, in the back, in, in the bibliography and references. But th then you've got other stuff that really can't be peer-reviewed. You know, if somebody if somebody can't walk and then they do some energy healing and suddenly they can walk, how do you peer-review that? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like, okay, now we're going to break your legs <laughs> and put you back in the chair and let's see if we can do that again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so you've got this this uh, in subject and between subject design um, that that might be applicable, but you know most of the time if somebody has an out of body experience or a near death experience, you know, um, the idea currently is that you you put a piece of paper up on the ceiling somewhere, uh, you know, on the lampshade, and then when they go out of body, they're going to read that, right? That it just, in my mind, it, it first of all violates that whole idea of perception and being constructed because actually those squiggles on the page aren't actually there. They're constructed in the mind and therefore when somebody's floating above, why are they seeing that one-tenth of a trillion of the electromagnetic spectrum that would interpret those squiggles as those numbers? Um, so I, I think it's methodologically flawed. Right, because it assumes that this reality is absolutely as it is, and it isn't. Well, that's um, what science does yeah. to begin with. The, the, the other that's thing the, is that's the first <laughs> assumption that science, uh, science does. The, 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 the other thing with the near death, I mean, you know, if I think I'm dying, I'm not going to be going, oh, look at those five numbers down there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm really not going to be paying attention to that. I'm probably going to be freaking out. Um, thinking about you know what the heck is going on, or I might be in this just beautiful space of peace, being held as some describe it, and wow, you know, th there's a light, there's a, the, the deceased relatives, there's something calling me, and I'm going to go and experience that. So yeah, the, the idea of just going to uh, look at numbers is 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 poor, and yet you know even um, uh, um, in those situations, people have been able to um, uh, validate what what other uh, people in the room were doing and saying what they were yeah. wearing and whatever else from different vantage point. Uh, um, and, and there's there's several examples of, of those types of near-death experiences. So again, you can't do a peer-reviewed paper on it. You know, it's, it's not... So there's, there's a problem with the peer-reviewed process in the... Um, in validating what essentially is qualitative data um, and one-off events... You know, because uh, science requires repeatability. Yeah. And, and therefore, if you can't repeat an experiment, then um, that doesn't that, that doesn't confirm uh, your, your, your hypothesis. But then, you know, there is a repeatability issue in science anyway. You know, if you look at some of the assumptions that are made in science there's, uh, that, that are uh, part of the materialist objectivist paradigm, uh, you'll find that actually lots of studies can be repeated. Mm. Um, and that isn't just in the field of psi research, which actually has some incredibly robust findings, um, but in, in all kinds of um, thing, experiments, especially like in, in uh, uh, medical trials and, and uh, you know, things that you think, oh, wow, really? Yeah, um, yeah so I'm not, I'm, it's a good process, but it's not the be-all and end-all of validating uh, experience. So yeah. what, one of the things that we, we're doing at the Monroe Institute, though, is we're seeing whether um, moving people into uh, particular uh, 
configurations using sound technology. So, um, for instance, the Judith Pennington, she uses a mind mirror EEG system. And, and together with uh, Bob Holbrook, who's our uh, director of innovation, and working with Ross Donsheath, who's in the um, in, uh, the the Department of Perceptual Studies um, at the University of Virginia, they've been doing things like um, um, remote viewing sessions when people enter these gamma synchrony states, and so you can validate that on the EEG, and that they can measure when somebody's entered the, what what they call those gamma portals. You know, it's like you, your brain just gets into the configuration and then it dissolves it, um, and and they're more likely. I mean, statistically very significantly more likely to get a hit when they're in those states and, yeah. and th this is uh, the research that we're hoping to publish very very soon actually and the random number generators again influencing those and getting into that coherence uh, with the with the group energy and so on is is brought into our mc squared programs where we do all the spoon bending and growing seeds with your hand and lighting bulbs up and all that kind of stuff so mm. we can influence random number generators again this is something that um, we're doing more and more of in the lab, um, so th there are there are experiments that are uh, repeatable, and uh, um, the 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 difficulty is that it's it's not so much showing that these things happen. It's it, it's the the difficulty in the current paradigm is explaining why. Yeah. In the absence of an obvious mechanism, and you know, I know you 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 uh, suggested that there are quantum effects and so on, or there could be, and people are looking at that kind of um, um, explanation. But because that doesn't really, um, you know, have a very robust system around it, that that is, yeah, okay, that's what it means. Then it's a lot easier to brush these anomalous results under the carpet. But that's our paradigm shift, you know. Um, uh, Kuhn, when he was describing the, the, the nature of paradigm shifts, he says you collect lots and lots of um, anomalous data until you say, okay, this doesn't fit the current paradigm, we need to shift something, and how do we include that? And so something then drags the old paradigm into the new understanding, which then encompasses the new understanding and everything that preceded it. You know, and and I think we're somewhere in that process right now. So we've got all the anomalous data, and more and more of it is building, but we don't quite have a solid enough explanation that covers that that people can say, yeah, okay, I'm ready to let go of this old paradigm. So we're so, a little bit in the uh, phase that were uh, six hundred odd years ago, where Earth was flat and some everything revolved around the Earth, and then. Slowly yeah. but surely, they shifted into the concept of the universe as we we perceive it today, right? Yeah. Now, now, now we're at the point we've got a telescope. We're looking at distant planets, and we're seeing that moons are revolving around those planets, and we're going, mm. oh. that that means that <laughs> that means that it can't be that everything revolves around the Earth." <laughs> Yeah, yeah that, that, that's kind of, I'd say we're maybe a little bit further along than that, but yeah. that sort of territory, you know, to say, okay, well, what does it actually mean? What is it actually revolving around? You know, uh, we, we can eliminate one thing that it's all material as we understand it, yeah. um, but we haven't quite got to that understanding that actually the material is just a denser vibration of what we're calling non-material, and therefore it's all one system. Yeah. You know, and, and the 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 um, the the understanding from quantum mechanics and and where where theoretical physics is now is is well everything's vibration, you know, and we've got this, and yet it's it's not 
it's quite trickling down into lived experience just yet. <laughs> so we know it, but we don't know it. Well, we know it, but we can't uh, prove it in the way that science demands that it's proven today. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the science almost needs to shift its perception of reality and what is... Well, it's, yeah, it's measuring uh, instruments needs to shift. Yeah. You know, how, how you're measuring it, what, what it means to measure something, and, yeah. and that, that needs to shift. And the other thing that science, uh, as, a, um, you know, as, as, a, as a dogma, not as a, as a practice, because the method is, is neutral, but as, as a dogma is to understand that people, uh, scientists are people, and so they're, they're subject to the same biases as, and attribution errors and everything else, the cognitive biases that they accuse a lot of others of, but they don't quite get the next step, which is, ooh, you might have these yourself. Because they don't look at the world from inside. Right, because they think, they look because they the think they're neutral. Yeah, yeah, because they think they're completely neutral, and that's just not true. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you, you just go uh, have a look at the lucid dreaming uh, research when that was coming out in the 70s. And, and early 80s you know a ton of, of uh, you know like people like Stephen LeBerge and Keith Hearn struggled like mad to get their research published in, in many scientific uh, publications because the editors were just sitting on it saying this is impossible you know so at some point the, 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 there's, a, uh, there's a gatekeeper who is subjective mm. and, and so if that subjective gatekeeper says this is impossible then it's not possible yeah. And and this is the chicken and egg argument that often gets thrown around by people like Dawkins and and uh, and you know you say oh it's it's not possible well have you done the I mean, there's no research on it okay well why don't we do the research well because it's not possible <laughs> you know and and you see that there's a circular argument there you know yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, so you're not looking at the research because it's not possible because you already know that why yeah. You know, what research have you read? What research have you done, conducted, that allows you to, to know that? Because the, the most staunch skeptic would say, I haven't seen any supportive data yet. That would be the, the most you could say, but you'd have to at least look at the data. Yeah. To say it offhand is a bias. Yeah. You know, that, that's confirming prejudice. It isn't confirming that you, that you are even remotely interested in looking at the data. And someone like Susan Blackmore, who's always been very, uh, um, um, you know, she, she's been very open at discussing these things, will freely admit that she hasn't looked at a paper for 15, 20 years right. you know, in the field of psi. And you think, well, you know, okay, at least you're admitting that. But yeah. what it says is that you're projecting your dogma for 15, 20 years. You yeah. Know? Well, and I, I think that is one of the challenges. People, are, scientists, get so invested in their view that for them to change their view, then it basically uh, nullifies and voids their entire existence up to that point, and now they have to rebuild it. See, but that, that you know, but that's that, a, that's a perception. I'm not that, saying that, that is a right. perception. You know, yeah. if a scientist came out and said, "Look, you know, I've been investing in this for 20 years, and I've been able to find robust findings, but now I've been skewed by the data that something is worthy of research," then I, a lot of people would respect them for that. Yeah, but I they think, don't think that. Well, you know, some do and a lot. Uh, well, a, a, a lot, a lot don't. <laughs> you know, but but what what is interesting is that now we're at a point where we can have this conversation, and the internet's really helped with that. Yeah. You know, it it has allowed people to um, go beyond what is um, you know hidden behind 
um, certain publications and what are allowed to be published, and and people can look at it. Unfortunately, then that that does mean that there's a lot of varying quality because you know people can post anything online and and um, create a YouTube video saying anything at all, and therefore yeah. it becomes a little bit dis more difficult to discern the well, information. There's a lot of uh, d discernment that has to be applied when researching yeah. on the internet. <laughs> but but it it opens at least a conversation, you know, and and that that in itself I think is valuable. Tremendously, and, tremendously. And, and you know, the, no, no scientist should think anything is off limits. You know, if if you if you think that uh, that straight away, then you have an a priori bias to whatever you're researching. Of course. You know? So, so the, the the idea is that you just take anyone in any institution. Yeah, I'm, I'm investigating psi, and others might go, "Huh, that's interesting." Okay, why are you doing that? Because I'm a scientist. <laughs> you know, that, that that would be it. You know, it's yeah, like okay, yeah. well, fine. You know, and and then that 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 would be the end of it. But unfortunately, it doesn't always work like that. Um, no, of course so, not. Of course so, not. You know, we can we can hope, but things are shifting, and people. Uh, what 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 I found is that um, people are, are less um, are less closed off from from their their own lived experience. Mm. You know, more and more people are able to have these experiences. So they're saying, where's the smoking gun? You yeah. know, what what's going on? Because I have this experience. Somebody else has it. Somebody else has it. Somebody else has it. You know, we're not having these one-off people who were able to go out of body like Bob Monroe in the 50s. You know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that are having these experiences. Millions of people, actually. You know, when, yeah. when you look at uh, the latest studies, you know, the polls, they show 55% of the population will have a, a lucid dream experience at some point, and, and maybe 25% will have an out-of-body. You yeah. know, you, you, so that's 2 billion people. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a lot of people. So what, what's going on there? Well, uh, <laughs> I think that's, that's the challenge for people to, when they have that experience, rather than say, and move on to actually say, hmm, I wonder what that was. Because once you answer that question, your 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 energy is uh, compelled to give you an answer. So it's but it's also daring to ask that question. I think is uh, one mm -hmm. one of the uh, challenges. So uh, we we clearly must have uh, gone into trance here because these two hours have disappeared. Uh, time distortion galore here. Uh, focus fifteen definitely. Um, <laughs> but um, as a round off here, I would like you to share, if you don't mind me putting on on the spot, that endearing story you told us uh, about the um, airplane ride you had and uh, a very very uh, concrete uh, useful application of out of body training and out of body experiences so uh, you have the floor luigi well, uh, yeah I'll, I'll share this one so i mean it's a little bit of a funny story i was flying back from from uh, the monroe institute and and I, I was exhausted, and uh, <laughs> the uh, um, I, w I was sat on the plane, uh, window seat, and I'm looking out the window, and I'm getting the vibrational state because I'm being kicked uh, from behind by a kid, <laughs> and, and you know, I mean, the kid was really bored, and and so I, I, I sort of turn my head and I look at. Um, what he's doing, and he's literally horizontal. <laughs> I mean, that's how he's he's let out. He's got his shoulders against his backrest, and he's got his feet on 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 the back of my chair, and he's just he's he's planked. You know, he's just completely horizontal. He's kicking the chair. He, he he's bored 
of his tree, um, as we say over here. And and I look at his mother, you know, and I was thinking, oh, shall I say something? And I look at his mother, his mother looks incredibly stressed out, you know, and, <laughs> and I've just been in this high energy space on the Monroe, so I can really pick up on, on the energy space. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, I'll let her off. <laughs> I'll let her off. It's hard work having maybe a three-year-old who's bored. <laughs> You only have like a six-hour flight ahead of you. Yeah, yeah, I've only got like you know, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I just put the headphones on, and and you know, I I I, um, I had a track, and, and thankfully I've got these wonderful headphones with with noise cancelling. So I just click noise cancelling. I can't hear the engine of the plane, and and I'm just listening to these um, uh, Monroe frequencies, and immediately I had the intention to just get out of there, and I just. Uh, just move my body out of the side of the plane, <laughs> just following it along. <sighs> just I was just out of Pressure. That, that. Well, you know, uh, it was just so nice to not have have somebody kicking me, um, and and you know, not being in that confined space, and you know, just give myself a stretch, and I flew around, and I just really enjoyed being out of body for a, for quite a, a while. Um, you know, when I came back, unfortunately, my body was all cramped and battered. You know, it was <laughs> it had slumped forward, <laughs> and so the, the the neck didn't enjoy that process of reentry. But you know, th this is how sometimes a very strong intent can can bypass <laughs> any other kind of. You know, you don't have to be in a retreat and in wonderful relaxing surroundings. You know, you can just get out of there if if the motivation motivation is strong, strong enough. enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the kid had stopped kicking the chair by the time I got back, so that was nice. <laughs> well, it is, it's a very practical application of a uh, practice that uh, allows you to uh, uh, experience things from a different perspective and a different yeah, yeah, level of consciousness. So, uh, <laughs> but wonderful. So, um, yeah, I appreciate you coming along and spending all this time with me and uh, sharing all this very valuable wisdom that you have with uh, our listeners. And uh, it's um, gain, gaining a lot of insight into what consciousness, you know, what the experience is. Uh, I think we all know, understand why we can't really describe consciousness. We can't label it. We can't, we can only experience it and yeah. how we want to experience it is up to ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's the key point. You know, uh, I mean, one thing that I would say to anybody listening to this is that, you know, you've listened to us talking for two hours and thank you. Um, Hope you weren't now, 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 now go find out for yourselves. You know, there, there are many, many ways of doing that. And obviously with the Monroe Institute, you know, uh, yeah. we were talking about the new expand app and, and uh, the workshops that I do in the UK, but I mean, you could be anywhere doing that, or you could just listen to these things yourself, have your own experiences, and then at least you know, you know, because sometimes just hearing it from others, you can accept or reject that, you trust us more or less, and so on, and and that's a belief, you know, and, and that's only going to take you so far, it might inspire you to search, but that's about as far as it gets, whereas when you have these experiences yourself, you say, yeah, okay, I get it, and, and that will increase your curiosity to find out what that's about for you you know so uh, yeah the bo books will give you knowledge but experiences will give you wisdom right right so, which i think is uh, key in uh, any type of uh, exploration like this uh, is mm -hmm. to go out and seek the wisdom not only the knowledge um so we appreciate it luigi and uh, it's been a, a wonderful having this time with you and uh, 
hopefully we'll, uh, you know, if you feel like it, we'll reconvene at some other point and yeah, uh, it be, do it, it again great. and yeah. uh, talk about something, uh, some some other topic. So appreciate it. Thank you, Luigi. Thank, thank you, Christopher. Cheers. Thank you. For us, that didn't quite feel like two hours. It felt more like uh, half an hour. Because uh, when you get into something and you get into flow, then uh, you go into trance. And in trance, your uh, consciousness and your concept of time is distorted. So uh, just another aspect of consciousness for you to consider when you're in flow. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation and that it opened up some uh, questions for yourself. That because when you do ask those questions for yourself, you are compelled to receive answers. And uh, certainly I can highly recommend going on one of these retreats at the Monroe Institute. So check in your country if uh, they have uh, those available. Otherwise, they do have some online programs as well as the app, the, the Expand app that we uh, talked about that you will find in the show notes. Uh, now, if you want to experience some of this in your everyday life and see how it applies to your everyday life, we uh, have a workshop at the alchemyexperience.co.uk uh, where we uh, work with this one-on-one with you. We do offer a 30-minute uh, free consultation. So if you go to the alchemyexperience.co.uk and on there you will find a link to uh, booking a 30-minute free consultation with us to ex explore how we might be the place for you to explore these aspects of yourself further. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, session with us and uh, hope to see you next time. For now, take care.